Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. We hope you find this message helpful. And at the same time, it is important to us that you know podcasts should not be a substitute for the flesh and blood people of the church. Church is more than sermons. If you aren't a part of a local church, we would love to help you find one in your area. Please don't hesitate to email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. That's sermons at borocitychurch.com. We would be happy to help. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Before we get into the scripture today, I want to do a couple of things. The first is to, uh, I'm going to talk about suffering today, and I want to save someone from a little bit of that. Um, uh, It has come to my attention that there is a car with uh, four, what is it? Is it an Audi with the four circles? An Audi? Is that right? Okay. It's a miracle. I knew what that was. Um, There is a white, oh, got it. All right. Car's running. We got it. All right, give him a hand, everybody. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, so his car was just going to run until it ran out of gas. Uh, <clears throat> uh, also, this weekend, we had the distinct privilege of um, welcoming in some new members uh, of this family uh, through our weekender. And so if you were in attendance, uh, one of our prospective new members in attendance at the weekender this weekend, would you stand up so uh, we can see you, recognize you, welcome you if you were here? <laughs> Awesome. Thank you, guys. Welcome to the City Church family. Um, Now, let's have a moment of silence where uh, we prepare to hear from the word of the Lord. Our Father, give us ears now to hear you through your word, eyes to see wonderful, beautiful things, some indescribable in the way that you show us yourself and show us what you're up to and how you love us. And give us minds to understand just really difficult concepts for us to wrap our head around, hearts to feel and desire to do your will and understand the depth of your love for us and hands and feet to live out that love in this community with our friends, our enemies, our neighbors, our co-workers, our families. In the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, amen. I want to start today as we continue our way through the book of Romans with three statements that then I will attempt to explain. Here are the three statements. The first one is that art is beauty produced through suffering. Second, God is an artist. And the third, life is art. Let me shed a little light now on those three statements. We'll leave them up on the screen for you. Uh, The first one, in a kind of way, any time that you take some raw materials and you fashion them together to make something new, you could classify it as art. I think especially if there is intent in that creation to connect with or disturb or encourage a person's whole being, mental, emotional, spiritual, even physical sometimes. The point is to make something, to create something, a story, a a poem, a chair, requires some level of sweat or stress or brain strain, okay? In fact, you often 
find some of the greatest artists are people who deeply tap into that suffering and pain to make something beautiful. So, for example, Van Gogh's Starry Night was his view from his room in a mental asylum. Right? Sometimes art itself is intended to bring about discomfort or suffering in us in order to make us into something beautiful. Think about a sad song that brings up memories of a hard time in your life or a story that you read that makes you face the fact that you are a hypocrite and need to change your ways. In fact, there's one of those in the Bible. There's a story in the Old Testament after King David has an affair with Bathsheba and kills her husband, where the prophet Nathan comes in just when King David thinks that he's gotten away with it and is sort of moving on with his life. The prophet David comes in and tells King David a story about a rich man who is stealing a poor man's sheep. And it stirs King David's emotions to the point that King David is so angry that he is ready to kill the man who has done this. And then Nathan says, you're the man. Like, not like with a fist bump, but with a pointed finger. It's you. You're the guy in the story. Now, that took some suffering, some difficulty on Nathan's part. You can imagine being a prophet, having to go in and tell the king that has the power to kill you, like to confront him. There's probably some nerves ahead of time going into that. He might not have slept well the night before. And that story, that piece of art, wasn't merely something for David to admire. It wasn't like he was a, Nathan was a court jester coming in to entertain with a fun story. No, it upset David. It stirred his emotions and it brought him to repentance. It made, eventually, David himself more beautiful. So, art is beauty produced through suffering. That sometimes through suffering produces beauty. All right, second. Second phrase, God is an artist. God created the world. He created something from nothing. And not everything that he created is for a utilitarian purpose, meaning like I can point at everything and that thing, I know exactly the way it works and what it works for. For example, banana slugs. What are they for? Like God, God create, you know, why, why taste? Why not just nutrition pellets? Like wh- wh- why don't we just, why doesn't he just inject something in us like that we could live? Like why do we have various kinds of foods? Why does he make the trees beautiful? Why doesn't he just make them produce what we need? He speaks in the scripture also through the broken artist of humanity, poetry and story, especially, you know, the prophets do a ton of performance art. You like, you ever look at a prophet like Ezekiel has to take poop and burn it. This is in the Bible. Okay. He has to take poop. He has to burn it. And he has to cook something over it. Now, in order to tell Israel a message about what God is doing. Now, some of us would look at Ezekiel and say, why don't you just tell them? And he would say, because God told me not to tell him. He told me to do this bit of performance art. Like that, it's all through the scriptures, especially with the prophets. Um, That makes up a vast majority of the Old Testament. Psalms, the longest book in the Bible, is poems. And in the New Testament, you find Jesus answering very few questions directly. Will you just tell us this, Jesus? Okay, point one, point two, point three, right? No, you find Jesus answering with parables, stories. Or phrases where he says, go and learn what this means. In fact, sometimes Jesus even says, just in case you think, oh, well, they understood stuff like that. 
People are very confused often after Jesus' stories. They have to go away. It disturbs them. They have to think about it. And then the disciples will come to Jesus and ask him, well, why are you talking like that? Why so artsy-fartsy, you know? Why, why not just tell people directly? And he's like, well, because I'm here to confuse people. And then he walks off to pray. I mean, that's basically the, the translation. Like, with, with, with these stories, I'm going to confuse some people. Other people will get it. Some people won't. And he made humans as the crown piece of his creation. And then through our rejection of him, we became the primary source of God, the artist, pain and suffering. The art, us, stirring the heart of the artist. Both to love and wrath, pain in the heart of our maker. And so if God is the author of life and God is an artist, it follows, the third one, that life is a work of art, a painting, a movie, a story. And it follows that we should expect for that art, our life, our experience of the world to disrupt us, to bring in suffering that will result in our beauty. To top it all off, the scripture says that we are made in God's image, which means that God, as chief artist, made humanity not only to be works of art, but to be artists, to bring about beauty through suffering. Okay, so file all of that away for a minute. Now I want to show you a couple of pictures to represent an idea so that when we read this scripture in a few moments... We start to see not only something beautiful, but also we see the danger of losing this beauty. The following images come from cultural commentator Ted Joya, who uh, is, uh, I subscribe to his newsletters, um, and he released this week his 2024 State of the Culture. Um, by the way, I highly recommend this article to you. You can get the link to it in uh, manuscript is up on the app, like with the sermon, and the link will be right in the manuscript. You can follow it and look at it. Um, so this is, uh, this is the first picture in this essay that he released. First, he says, a lot of us break things down into two categories. There is art that challenges us, and there's entertainment that just gives us kind of what we want. Okay, this is the old adage, you know, I, oh, I don't want to watch a movie that I have to think about. You know, just give me a popcorn movie. Just give me some mindless, something mindless to relax to. You know, no comment on that phrase. I'm just giving you a paradigm, which is worth 20 cents. Paradigm. All right, pick two. Look at this. Ted says, actually, what ended up happening is not this equal sort of choice to art or entertainment, something that disturbs us to make us beautiful or something that just kind of feeds us. Actually, what ended up happening is entertainment tends to give us what makes us feel good. And so it has become the choice that most of us make. We don't want to be disturbed to be made into something beautiful. We just want to satiate our desire to zone out or enjoy a night or whatever, okay? There's less suffering associated with entertainment. In recent years, however, really this last year, you take, for example, Disney's profits started tanking. The Marvel movies that used to be an easy payday stopped drawing people's eyeballs, because people's attention could not even be captivated anymore by a superhero movie. Now, our eyeballs have been captivated by distraction, not entertainment. And so we get the next picture. Short videos, reels, TikToks that draw our eyeballs in. They grab our attention for literally a few seconds 
And then we are shuffled off to a new image, a new idea, a new thought, the doom scroll. This, of course, our attention, is one of the most valuable products in the world of advertisers, which are selling to your consumption. So it has become extremely profitable to simply get attention. No more story needed in order to get something from us instead of creating art, which inherently gives something to us, even though it disrupts us. But beholding art also involves being willing to be challenged. It's a slow work, and it can't really compete with entertainment in the excitement category, and it has no shot in a distraction culture. And since distraction is so profitable, at least in the short term, because we kind of get what we want, it behooves those who can profit from it if we are addicted to distraction. And here's the next picture that he gives us. Enter the dopamine loop. Now we're into brain chemicals. And I don't want to belabor this picture other than to say that we now have the science that we can use distraction to addict people to pleasure and squeeze their money out of them while they are under the illusion that they are freely choosing something good for them. It is the embodiment of Aldous Huxley's 20th century novel, A Brave New World, which no one is going to be able to read and understand because we'll be too hooked on the dopamine boost for our distractions to see it happening to engage a work of art like A Brave New World. Like in the 1930s, people were predicting this was going to happen, but we can't hear it anymore because we don't even know that kind of stuff exists, which leads to this final picture. Ted Joya calls it how Silicon Valley views culture which I admit is a bit of a culture war broad generalization. Okay, it's his picture, not mine. But there is a reason that Steve Jobs didn't let his kids have iPads while he mass-produced them for everyone else's kids. This is not producing a flourishing or a beautiful society. It is and has been producing a chronically anxious, self-centered society that has become deeply fearful and avoidant of the very means through which we will become beautiful while we just swear to each other that we're not really addicted. I can quit any time. But at least we're distracted from the reality as we're milked for our attention and money. I sincerely hope that right now in this moment, we have hit the low point of this sermon and it is going to be all up from here, all right? None of this, listen to me, okay? I'm not here to make you panic, all right? That, that ship has sailed, okay? I, I'm not asking you to throw your phone in the trash or to protest the new Apple Vision Pro goggles, okay? Though if you want to, that's fine, all right? What I am asking you to do is to understand and value That true artistry is slow, it's painful, but it produces something beautiful. It is better for all of us in the long run, but it requires making difficult choices in the short run. Don't lose that idea amongst the addictive distraction that feels like someone is giving something to you, but they are actually taking something from you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, words that speak directly to this incredibly sad situation that we find ourselves in as a people. The words of the artist who created another artist named Paul through suffering, who now, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, tells us about the beauty that is coming from his artistry, the redemption and the glory of new creation. Let's read together Romans 8 
18 through 30. I'll read it out loud. You read it silently, unless you can keep up, okay? Uh, you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we uh, give those away for free here. They are located on, just outside the door on the welcome desk. In the meantime, the words will be on the screen behind me. So Romans 8, 18 through 30. We are doubling back a little bit on some of the verses from last week, um, but it will be fine. Okay, Romans 8, 18 through 30. Paul writes to the church in Rome, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And that is the word of the Lord from Paul's letter to the Roman church. Chapter 8. The artist, number one, is using all of our suffering to make us beautiful in a beautiful world. This is where it is. Isn't that much better than the intro, right? That, like that, this is, this is what the artist plan is. Um, I remember watching Bob Ross paint on his PBS show when, when I was a kid. Anybody, y'all seen Bob Ross before? It's it pretty ubiquitous, okay? Now, Bob Ross is certainly not the apex of painting by any stretch. I don't mean to, to say that, but... It was one of the few ways as a child that I got to actually observe an artist go from start to finish, from blank canvas to finish work of art. And they would cram it, you know, into this 30 minute public broadcasting program. Um, and you could just see him do the whole thing while, you know, he you'd look at the back of his afro and then he'd turn around and he'd talk and then he'd bring a squirrel in and he'd talk to a squirrel on his shoulder. <clears throat> Very peaceful. He always painted nature scenes. And when he would start, I would watch with wonder at exactly what those first brushstrokes were going to turn into. Would they be clouds, an ocean wave, uh, a mountain? And slowly, the strokes would start to turn into the landscape that my little eight-year-old eyes could finally see. Um, I could finally see the form of what they were, and I could see, oh, that's, that's cool. That looks like an ocean or a mountain or a tree. And then... And then, once he would get this, he'd get this scene painted, and, and I'd be staring at Bob Ross thinking, ah, we're done. But then I'd look at the time, and I was like, there's 10 minutes left. And then he would ruin the painting. I would think it was all over. And then he would just take this deep, 
dark black color. Probably made from yellow ochre, you know, <laughs> he always lists the colors. He would take this deep, dark black color. And he would make, he'd take his brush and he would make a huge, thick, dark mark right down the middle of what looked like to me a perfect nature scene. I'm like, what are you doing? You just ruined that thing. The first time I saw him do this, I was angry at him. Why would you do this to what was already a great painting? And then he would do this thing where he takes his brush and he just starts to pull away from that dark line on the left and then on the right. And right before my eyes, a happy little tree that gave depth to the scene and actually made the whole thing more real because it gave perspective because it was like, oh, there's a tree right there. Now I'm looking I can tell what's, what's in the foreground and what's in the background, as Grover says, near and far, right? <laughs> Is Sesame Street still on? I don't know. <laughs> ultimately, ultimately, that dark mark made the painting more beautiful. And that's what Paul says in this text, that God the artist is doing with our suffering. Look at verse 18 and 20 together here. He says, I consider that the big dark line down the middle of the painting is going to be worth the end result. It's basically, it's putting a metaphor on top of 18. It says that he subjected all of his creation to futility. In other words, not very much tility. No, I'm kidding. Um, in other words, it's, <laughs> it seemed, neither of those things were in my manuscript. All right. It seemed like... Everything, okay, so it seems like everything that he made up to this point, futility, was pointless because of suffering. But actually, he says, the master artist was at work taking the paint and drawing it out into a tree that gives depth and meaning and beauty. Look at verse 28 and 29. He says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, okay? First of all, this statement does not mean that you will always know or understand how God is working for good. That's not what this means. Secondly, this statement does not mean that your job is to constantly justify or protect God by explaining to yourself or to other people that they should look for some silver lining in the middle of their suffering. One of the worst ways to use this text is to look at someone grieving in deep suffering or loss and say, hey, don't be so down. God's going to use this for good. That is way more like distraction than it is a good application of this text. These verses talk about a deep groaning in response to suffering, and that is where the Holy Spirit meets us. The aim of this verse is not to be happy in the midst of pain and grief. While it is absolutely true that God uses all suffering to make us into something beautiful, he does not promise that we will understand, listen, how he does it. Nor does he task us to figure it out. But he does call us to mourning and groaning. More on that in a bit. That said, the point is well taken here that the brush stroke of suffering is going to make us more like Jesus and bring us into a deep appreciation of the final piece of art, the new creation that God is making 
and making the world, making in us and making the world into. The good that all things are working together to produce, listen, is not about giving you better circumstances. You're not trying to take every bit of suffering and figure out how your life is a little better now. That's not what he intends. It is about making you like Jesus, conforming you to the image of his son. Every painful chapter in your story, he's promising, God will use to conform you to the image of his son. God's work is often, it's compared to a tapestry. Okay, so you know, like a a big rug or whatever. Um, No, just a big rug. Why did I tag in or whatever? I completely devalue that statement. Like a big rug, okay? So a tapestry or a thing that hangs on the wall. You ever look at the backside of a tapestry? If you look and watch the artist weaving that rug on the backside of the tapestry, it looks unimpressive, even chaotic. But when you look on the other side, you can see the way every thread was pulled tight to create a beautiful image. You cannot judge a tapestry's beauty until you get to the other side. You cannot judge a Bob Ross painting. You can't stop him in the middle of the downstroke of the foreground tree. you got to let him draw out the branches. Likewise, we won't feel or understand all the ways God used the painful parts of our life to bring about ultimate beauty in us and in the world. We're just not going to know that yet. It's also extremely important to see here that Paul writes, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, okay? That doesn't mean that if you love God, then he makes your suffering worth it. Like God is checking. Do you love me? Okay, now your suffering I'll make. All right, no, that's not what that means. It means that if you choose to love yourself instead of God, he will allow you to walk away from the good that he is working. He's already working the good. The question is, do you want to participate in it or not? He's not waiting to see if you love him. He's like, will you go off and love yourself, be angry at God, or will you turn around, repent, and come to God and say, I trust that you're working something good. Then you'll get to participate in it. If you don't trust that he is working through your pain, you will never walk around to the other side of the tapestry to behold and participate in the beauty. You'll walk away claiming he doesn't know what he's doing. You'll cut off Bob Ross. You'll just turn the TV off as soon as the deep, dark stroke goes down the middle of that painting and you'll claim that he is a hack who has no clue how to paint. If you don't trust him, if you don't stay with him, persevere, endure with him, follow his calling to endure, to see what he's doing in you, for you, and for the world, you will not participate in the redemption of your suffering. But he's not just doing something to our character or our spirit. He's making all things new. All of creation, including, he says in this text, our bodies. Look at verse 22 and 23. I'm not going to stay here long because we covered these verses last week, but I don't, I don't want to leave you out of this wonderful hope. God isn't just preparing some disembodied heaven for us. In fact, that's not mainly what he's preparing. That's like, it, I mean, never mind. I'm going to stick with what it says here. He's making all creation new. The scripture calls it new heavens and new earth. Like we get very focused on going to heaven. That's not even the main point of scripture. That's like a holdover. That's like a waiting place for what he's finally going to do. That's like Bob Ross before he finishes the painting. No, no, no. When, when the painting's done, it's called new creation, new heavens and new earth. Like, I, sure, when I die, go to heaven. 
Great, okay? Or the righteous compartment of Sheol or whatever Hebrew you want to get into, all right? That's wonderful. But man, what, my ta- what your taste is made for is the physical, bodily touch and feel of new creation. Not, you know, not like Casper. Heaven is not a final destination. For those that love God and are called according to his purpose, your final destination is here. Listen, right where you're seated. I'm going to be in a sanctuary? <laughs> you might. I mean, I, y'all, this place is going to be crazy when Jesus makes it new. A purified, renewed, remade Murfreesboro, Tennessee, as Jesus prayed, on earth as it is in heaven. That's where we're headed. Like, that's what we should have a taste for. Not dying and floating off somewhere. Remade. Physical bodies. And you will have a completed whole body. We're in a world broken by our sin. We decay and we move towards disintegration. In creation, all things will be renewed and continually moving toward integration. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament is shalom. It's translated peace. But it it is the peace of integration. All things working together for good. All things working together as they should. No longer will there be struggle, human versus God, human versus human, or creation versus human, which, by the way, are all the three major storylines in the films you watch and the books you read. We also have, there's also human versus machine, which I talked about at the first, right? Now, all things will interact. It won't, it won't be verses anymore. It won't be competition. It'll be cooperation. It won't be consumption It'll be cultivation. It won't be platformers. It'll be pillars. Forever. That is the eternal, finished painting. Bodily, physical, resurrected. But we don't get there, Paul says, before we groan together. And therein comes our warning. Number two of three. If we're addicted to distraction, we'll miss the deepest and sweetest brushstrokes of the Holy Spirit. Paul brings up groaning the verb groaning, twice from ver- in verse 22 and 23. He says that creation groans with labor pains, like we talked about this last week, like a pregnant woman about to give birth to a baby. And then he says that those who have put their faith in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit reminding us of the truth of our identity, remember last week, our future and the way that God loves us as a father, that's what the Holy Spirit reminds us of. He says that we will groan with creation. So creation groans, the trees, the ground, come on, all right? And we're groaning. The Greek word for groan also means to sigh, which can also be a helpful way to think about this. When we sigh, we are recognizing that something is not like it should be. Think about when you sigh. In that moment, you're thinking about something's not like it should be. And we are instinctively taking a deep breath, pulling in oxygen to draw strength to make it through the moment when things are painful, not like they should be, to get to the other side where they are like they should be. Like a woman working through the pain of childbirth to get to that beautiful baby. She groans. She intentionally adjusts her breathing. She sighs over and over and over. So Paul says creation or the world is groaning. And he says people who know Jesus' love are groaning. We're taking deep labored breaths because we want Jesus to come back and finish this painting. Look at verse 26 and 
27. When Paul also writes that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the one Trinitarian God, helps us in our weakness, look, by interceding for us with unspeakable groans. There are a couple of things here with this really weird phrase, which I admit is strange, okay? So what, is, what are these groans? What, what's Paul getting at here? Two things, I think. First, emotion. Emotion. Pathos. God is feeling our pain. Think of that beautiful verse in John chapter 11 at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Even though Jesus knows that he is going to resurrect Lazarus, he deeply feels his friend's death and the pain of Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sister. So, Jesus, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. And listen, suffering is not a competitive sport. Like, we're not all trying to figure out, well, what should I weep about and What should I not? Jesus weeps. The Holy Spirit groans at all of our pain, at everything that is not as it should be. Everything that is not right about the world grieves Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and our Father. So while, yes, a paper cut is different from the Holocaust, for sure. Like, there are... In that sense, there are different levels of suffering. And yes, we can get our suffering out of whack. And we can, in a way, start thinking, well, my suffering is just like yours, even though clearly there is some difference in the way we suffer. That said, that said, we should not compare suffering and shame one another because our suffering is as great as something else. Don't be suffering toppers. You know what a topper is? You tell a story and the next person, you know, I met the governor. Well, I met the president. Okay, that's not what we do with our suffering. Like we weep with one another. We do share our stories, but we groan with one another. Because when you do that, when you become a suffering topper that can actually lead people to ignore grief and pain instead of going through the process of groaning and letting the Holy Spirit minister to them which is what this verse is getting at. The second thing, so it's emotion. There's a connection with suffering. And likewise, with the Holy Spirit in us, we should have that kind of connection and emotion in other people's suffering. The second thing about this groaning is wisdom. The groaning represents, okay, emotion and wisdom. Paul writes that the Spirit intercedes or talks to God the Father on our behalf. He prays for us according, it says, to our Father's will. This means that as we go through grief and pain and endure suffering and recognize it and mourn it and ask questions like the psalmist asked, why, God? Where are you, God? That the Holy Spirit is in some way that I can't explain. I'm just going to tell you that up front. I don't completely understand this. I can't completely explain it. But somehow he is taking those groanings and he is turning them into prayers to ask for things that we don't know how to ask for. For the Father to complete the work that he's doing. So listen, for your encouragement, in your moment of pain, when you can't even get out the words to ask God, the Holy Spirit himself feels you and talks to our Father for you with wisdom when you don't know to say anything other than why, God. Isn't that beautiful? What a comfort. There is in our darkest moments an inter-Trinitarian conversation happening within the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, about how the artist will turn your pain into beauty in you and around you. 
By the way, you know the other famous inter-Trinitarian conversation where the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit talk together? Genesis 1, first page of the Bible. Let us make man in our image. When God gets beautifully creative, he talks to himself. And that's why a lot of artists end up in insane asylums. <laughs> this is how he made the original creation, inter-Trinitarian conversation that overflows into art. And that's how he's making new creation, inter-Trinitarian conversation that overflows into art. So now let's think back to Ted Joya's article as we just apply this a little bit in our current cultural malaise. I'm going to get you out of the hope and into the doom for a second, all right? Remember the dopamine loop? If my life is being swallowed up by addiction to distraction. This is where my attention always is, on whatever TikTok's feeding me, whatever social media's feeding me, whatever the 30-second video is that's just taking up my time. The stories, the literal you know, Instagram stories that are shaping me. These things are intended to take you away from groaning, to take you away from grief. They end up stoking fear in you because when you see it happening, you run from it and you protect your children from it and you say, this can't be for me, suffering. And we trade in, like Esau traded in his birthright for a bowl of red soup, only in a moment, with no long-term benefit. We trade in the good grief and mourning and pain that we need to go through and groan through for short dopamine bursts that just give me temporary pleasure. Where in this loop, which according to Ted Joya, and I'd say he's right, is where our culture is and is going even faster. Where in this loop will I join with creation and the Holy Spirit in groaning for the redemption of my body? Nowhere. There's no place for it. Because it doesn't profit Silicon Valley. Where will I groan for the king to come back and make all things new? I won't. I'll just be distracted from my pain. Where will I cry out, Abba, Father, in this dopamine loop? I won't. Where will I cry out, Jesus, come quickly? Where will I minister to the poor, the hurting? Where will I make myself vulnerable? Where will I risk to be a pillar instead of a platformer that just consumes? Where in this will I have grit, resolve, and courage that produces something in me and in others through the work of the Holy Spirit? I won't. I won't. I won't join in with the Holy Spirit. And I will never desire to look on the other side of the tapestry. I'll miss the Father's calling me according to his purpose. And I will drain all the meaning out of my suffering just to see the next 10-second video in my feed and the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. And sure, this will dull the pain. Like dopamine dulls the pain, guys. Sure, it won't hurt as bad. But my growth in Christ will be stunted and I won't have the patience to wait for anything with hope. I won't have the patience to know God by deeply engaging in his word because the Bible is way more boring than TikTok videos. I won't have the patience to pray 
or to sit quiet and listen. I won't have the patience for anything other than quick fixes and addictive hot takes. Addiction, eating distraction, eating entertainment. Put up that next picture, Dylan. Eating art. If God's work in the world is art, beauty through suffering. If I am a part of his masterpiece, if beauty comes through suffering, not through avoiding suffering, and this is the state of our culture, we'll just take a look at what's happening in our hearts and minds to what God is doing in the world. It is being eaten by distraction and addiction. So is there hope? The answer is yes. Do you think Apple Vision Pro can stop the Lord our God? Of course not. No invention of man can stop what God is doing, or AI, or chat GPT, or TikTok, or deep fakes. No. What the artist started, he will finish. Musical artist Lecrae has this line in his song, 828. That's based on, it's called 828 because it's based on the verse, Romans 828. He worked all things to the good of those who love God and are called on According to his purpose, the chorus goes like this. It's going to work out sooner than later. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. It's going to work out in your favor. And then listen to the attention. Where the attention. Keep your head to the sky. And keep your eyes on the prize. This is not the prize. I only brought this up here because I need to do that thing with the license plate because your car was running, all right? would have been its own form of suffering layer, all right? There's a line in that song that has stuck with me, not only because of the artistry of the sound in the rap, and I love wordplay, but because of the message of the hope of Romans 8 and how beautifully it states it. And this is what he says. The master artist makes your mess a masterpiece regardless. The master artist makes your mess a masterpiece. Don't you love that last word? Regardless. I mean, we're going to get here next week, but, you know, Romans, Romans 8 ends with, you can't stop him. You know, whoever, Bill Gates, China, Steve Jobs, Tim Cook, whoever, you can't stop him, man. The master artist makes your mess a masterpiece regardless. Paul doesn't bring up, look at verse 29 and 30, he doesn't bring up this word to start an argument, this predestination word to start an argument about Calvinism. My aim is to draw Romans 8 until I go on sabbatical later, and then, and then Jeremy has to preach Romans chapter 9. That's what, I, that's what I'm shooting for. Watch for it, okay? Watch me do this. <clears throat> the chapter many of you have been waiting for, all right? Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Young. <laughs> all right. <laughs> oh, man. In the middle of uncertainty, God's bringing comfort. And that's why... That's why he goes on to make this chain, a different chain than the dopamine loop and then the, the fish, you know, distraction, eating art. He goes on to make this chain. What, the, what God the artist decided to do, he's going to bring to completion. And it started, he said, with making, oh, it's going to start with making all things new. It's going to end, or it's, it starts with predestination. Like I'm saying, I'm going to promise you that I'm going to make all things new. I'm choosing you. I'm taking you. We're going to do something. And it's going to end with glorification, him doing what he said he's going to do. God didn't choose to love you because of your righteousness. And if he didn't choose you because of your good works, he's not going to drop you because of your bad ones. 
He will see you through. He will see us through. He's going to finish the painting. You turn off the TV, Bob Ross is still painting, baby. He's dead now, but, you know, resurrection, okay? He is dead, isn't he? He died. Yeah, okay. All right. We all die, all right? And you know how we know this? You know how we know this is true? Because the cross of Jesus is the Bob Ross tree that went right down the middle of the painting of the world. I almost titled this sermon God Ross, but I didn't know if you guys like that. <laughs> Sorry. Everyone thought that at Jesus' death, everything was ruined. The disciples that followed him thought, well, this is it. That was a waste of three years. But God kept painting. He kept pulling out those happy little branches tapped into the vine to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul refers both to, in, in this text, he refers to Jesus and the Holy Spirit as the first fruits. When a harvest is coming in, the first fruits are the early bloomers. The first apple or cherry or olive or grape picked off the branch. The others aren't quite ready yet. But the first fruits, if they are sweet and plentiful, give the farmer an idea of what he can expect in his crop, a sweet and plentiful Harvest. Our first fruits are Jesus's resurrection. That's pretty sweet. And the Holy Spirit within us testifying to us that God is our father. He loves us and our future with him is secure. Sin doesn't own us and death can't stop us. Um, Y'all, if that's the first fruits, what's the harvest fixing to be like? It's going to be a good batch, man. The other side of the tapestry, the final picture, will be completed. And through the pain, not despite the pain, through the pain, through the painful brushstrokes, we will feast. Master artist makes your mess a masterpiece. Regardless, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I know your Holy Spirit is just working over the room at people who have kicked against the goads, people who have resisted you. I know your Holy Spirit is at work across the room. People know, and man, I I need to make a change in my life. I've got way more phone than Bible. I've got way more of the doom scroll than the Old Testament scroll. That's okay to laugh in prayer, y'all. I don't, I don't like to leave Jesus out of my jokes, y'all. Like I'm, we need to learn. Like Humor is a part of the way God works. Jesus is always standing, watching us pray all serious prayers, and he's like, man, y'all get done with me. You go over there, you have a good time. No, no, no. And appreciate what the Lord is doing in us. That's what new heavens, new earth is going to be like. You think I'm going to make my prayers all serious? Get on this train, man. New heavens, new earth is going to be beautiful. And right now, I know the Holy Spirit's at work. Even through laughter, repentance is coming. 
Some of you need to just repent to get off that addiction distraction train. There's a little space to do that right now. Just talk to the Lord. some in the room the Holy Spirit's working on you right now and he's just saying it it's time to stop being angry at the artist and in faith embrace what he's doing and say yes to following Jesus to the other side of the tapestry so right now I'll give you space to talk to the Lord and say yes to Jesus suffering you've been through matters to God. The pain that you felt is not wasted. God is painting. He is building something. The only question for you is will you resist the artist strokes or will you turn into his paintbrush and let him paint with you? have baptism a little later today and I just invite you if you have never stepped into the beautiful painting of baptism this beautiful work of art another piece of performance art that God says I don't just want you to tell people about Jesus I want you to show people what Jesus has done when you say yes to baptism proclaiming what God has done what you believe he's done maybe today you've made a decision for the first time to follow Jesus that's the next step Maybe you made a decision years ago and it's time to step into the performance art of baptism that he calls us all to, the sign. We say yes to that. Father, thank you for your kindness, for the hope. Yeah, in the middle of a world that can just be scary and get the best of us with fear, you bring in hope. We're fighting a battle you've already won and so we do so with confidence, with joy, and with love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.